you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, everyone. Great to see you here this morning, online and and gathered. This is a great passage of Scripture, and I can't wait to open it together with you now. But can I pray that as many of us are very familiar with this passage, that as we come to it again, that we would have ears to, to listen and hearts sort of prepared to be changed. So let's pray together. Father, as we come to this place today, physically, or we gather together digitally, we thank you that you are sovereign over both of those mediums. And we pray, Father, that as we come and we, we sit beneath your word, and as we look up to your face, we pray, God, that you would pour out your blessings on us, that this word would be alive, that our hearts would be stirred and filled with who, more of who you are. And uh, we ask this in faith because it's a prayer, Lord, that you want, to, you want to answer. And so we ask it now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen. I want to start with a verse that we didn't read this morning, but it's a verse that is central, I think, to what is going on in this passage. Matthew 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by storm. Listen to that again. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by storm. What does Jesus mean? He's painting the picture of the kingdom of heaven as a city that is besieged by a hostile army. It's surrounded 
And then in a moment, there's, there's a rush and the gates are beaten down and the walls are overcome and the city is taken by force. What on earth can Jesus mean when he says the kingdom of heaven is like that? Who, the scripture tells us that the nations, all of them are like a drop in the bucket. And the princes of the world are like dust in the scales. So who is going to take the kingdom of God by force? Who is going to do violence on the kingdom of heaven? Today I'm not going to tell you who that is. I'm going to show you. So as we come to Luke chapter 8, the scene is a big crowd of people. Uh, in verse 42, it says that they're, they're pressing in on him. This is exactly the same word that Jesus himself used earlier in the chapter uh, to talk about the fact that um, when he speaks in the parable of, of the sower, he speaks about the word being choked out by the thorns. This is the same word he's using. So the crowd is hemming him in. It's, it's crushing him. It's uh, pressing in on him. But maybe at this point, the crowd parts. Because someone very important is here. He's an important man. He's a man of social status and influence. He's a man with authority. He's a man who's used to making decisions, but not today. Verse 41 tells us that he falls on his face before Jesus. His name is Jairus. And he's a ruler of the synagogue, and here he is falling on his face before an itinerant preacher from Nazareth. But Jairus cares nothing for those things now. He cares nothing for social convention because his little girl, 12 years old, is at home dying. Jesus listens to his plea. And as he moves, he takes the crowd with him towards Jairus' house. But he doesn't get far because we are interrupted by another character. And this character is very different from Jairus in nearly every way that you can imagine. This character is a woman. And it's a woman, we're told, who has had a terrible disease for 12 years. The same as long as Jairus has had his daughter, this woman has had this disease we're not told specifically what the disease is, doctors speculate, but it seems that she had some kind of uterine hemorrhage, a permanent uterine hemorrhage that would discharge a small amount of blood continuously. And in that culture, it would be a difficult condition today. It would be an embarrassing condition socially, but then it was, a, it was an isolating condition because it made her ceremonially unclean all of the time. She was excluded and we're told that she spent all the money that she had, all the resources that she had on the medical profession, but nothing had helped her. And now as, as the crowd around Jesus moves towards Jairus' house, it's almost like she lurks in ambush. She waits for the crowd to go past and then at the moment that there's an opportunity, she reaches forward her hand and she touches the edge of Jesus' garment as he passes by. And in that instant, the bleeding stops. But so does Jesus. And he turns around and he asks, who touched me? And everyone de denies it. And Peter, Captain Obvious, um, says like, Jesus, everyone is touching you. 
Hagin say, who is it? And Jesus, he, he seems to make a scene. He, he's determined to force the issue. And he says, no power went out for me. And he waits. Who was it? And he waits. And he waits. And finally, this poor woman realizing that she's cornered, she comes clean and she confesses and says what has happened. But let's come back to Jairus for a moment. Because I want to ask that question, how did Jairus feel at this moment of time? Now, I'm a dad of a daughter, and I believe that I know exactly how he felt. When my daughter Arabella was a little toddler, um, she had uh, one thing she loved to do above everything else, which was break into the boys' room and just categorically destroy their Lego. She had this, this one one determination. And on one occasion, she was in the midst of her evil schemes and she was crawling towards the boys' rooms. But this time, the boys were onto it and one of the brothers reached out and slammed the door. And at that moment, there was an agonized scream. And uh, Dana and I rushed towards the room and we saw Arabella screaming and we saw in the hinge of the door, her finger cleanly amputated and in that moment um, I, Dana got the little finger and she put it in some ice and, and, I, and I got the bandage on, on the stump and, and, we, and we got to the car, I got in the car and I rushed towards the hospital and on the way the bandage dislodged and, and she didn't stop that agonised screaming for one moment and blood was spurting everywhere all over the car and all over to me. We arrived at the hospital and I rushed up the steps carrying my daughter who was still screaming and spurting blood and we walked into emergency and for the only time in my history of visiting emergency departments, we walked straight in. But let's imagine for a moment that that didn't happen and that we stood in the queue and ahead of us in the triage queue talking to the triage nurse was a man that had a twisted ankle and he's chatting about the weather with the nurse and I'm holding my little girl who's screaming and bleeding. How would I feel? Well, that's how Jairus felt, surely. Here is Jesus chatting with a woman about a lesser medical condition while my daughter's dying. What are you doing, Jesus? And while Jairus frets and he's anxious and come, come on, come on, then the messenger arrives. And he says, It's too late. Leave the teacher alone. Your daughter is dead. Jesus, your delay has been very costly. While you are having your discussion about a lesser medical condition, my daughter's dead. But they go on anyway to the house where the mourners have gathered and Jesus says, do not weep. She's not dead, she's just asleep. And they laugh at him, you idiot. Of course she's dead. But then they go into the room. Jesus calls her name, takes her hand, raises her up, and tells the parents to give us some lunch. Now these two interwoven stories are two miraculous encounters that real people had with a real Jesus. And in them, he shows himself to be the effortless master of disease and death. In Luke chapter 8, we've already seen him the effortless master of the raw elemental power of nature 
and the dark power of the demonic and Satan. And now he just categorically adds to this power. And the question that the disciples asked in verse 25, you might remember it from chapter 8, after Jesus has stilled the storm, enough, quiet. And they look at him in fear. And in verse 25, they say, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Who is this? Isn't that the question that's still ringing in our ears 2,000 years later? Who is this man? Who is he? Who can do that? Can you do that? Who is this man? And I will tell you who this man is. This man is the king of the kingdom, right? This man is the king of the kingdom of heaven and he is walking through the dusty streets of Israel and this is the king. The king's here. Who is this man? He is the king of heaven. And so back to the verse that I began with from Matthew's gospel, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. And I said I wouldn't tell you who the violent ones were. I would show you, well, you just met them. You met two of them. You met a bleeding woman and you met a desperate dad. Both of these encounters show us men, a man and a woman storming the kingdom of God, taking it by force. And you say, well, how did that happen? They were desperate. How, how were these the kind of violent ones? We, we imagine soldiers assaulting the kingdom. How were they violent? Remember verse 25? After the calming of the storm. When they ask, who is this? Do you remember what Jesus says to them in verse 25? The disciples in that boat. He says, where is your faith? Where's your faith? Here's faith. A bleeding woman and a desperate dad. Let, let's look at their stories in more detail here. The firstly, the, the faith of a bleeding woman. She's cornered. She's probably embarrassed and ashamed. She's going to have to talk about her medical condition publicly. Jesus has, has cornered her and he's saying, who was it? And finally she realizes she can't get away. She says, it's me. And she confesses. And his response in verse 48 is this. Daughter, he says. It's a beautiful term, isn't it? Especially considering this woman is probably older than he is. Daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your faith, he says. This woman has had a desperate need. She may have been timid. She may have been embarrassed. She may have been afraid. She's waited till Jesus goes past, and then she's done it by stealth. She's, she's reached out and touched the hem of his garment. But yet, even though these may have been a fearful, timid action, she has exercised faith. She has put her faith in Jesus. And Jesus knows this faith, and so the healing power goes out from him, and it cures her, and it helps her. And then Jesus says, daughter, your faith has healed you. And then more than that, he says, now go in peace. Go in shalom. God and you are made right. You're at peace. She's a violent one. 
Here is someone who has stormed the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, by violence and taken it. She's a violent one. And I love Jesus' response. It's not condemnation for what she did. It's commendation. Your faith has healed you. This bleeding woman took by force what she later discovered Jesus was all too willing to give her by freely. And the faith of a desperate dad. He's a violent one too. And let's consider his position. Jairus at that moment when he is standing desolate. The crowd is all around him. He's got no place to run and hide. Everyone is looking and at that moment he gets the news from the messenger. Your daughter's dead. Leave the teacher alone. It's over. But it's not over, is it? In verse 50, Jesus looks into Jairus' desperate eyes and he simply says, do not fear, only believe. Only believe and she will be well. Only believe, Jesus says to Jairus in that moment. Only believe against all the obstacles that would tell you that you shouldn't. Only believe. In that moment, Jesus is asking Jairus, can I proceed? Will you let me go to your house? Will you trust me? Or in this moment, will you say enough, go, no more pain, no more false hope? Do you believe, Jairus? Two people so very different, a bleeding woman and a desperate dad, both of them doing violence to the kingdom of God in the way that they lay hold of Jesus Christ. But as always, when we look at these encounters, they're a good story, aren't they? You can imagine yourself perhaps in in one of those characters. You can imagine yourself if it was you. But then the question is, well, well, what about it is me now, right? So what does this mean for me right now? A couple of things which I think may really help us. Firstly, and let me begin by being theologically controversial. We haven't got enough controversy in other areas. So I thought it's time to be theologically controversial. I love the doctrine of election. What's the doctrine of election? The election... The doctrine of election says that God chooses you for salvation. He elects you. Uh, Ephesians 1 verse 4 tells us, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. It's a doctrine of election that before you and I existed, before we'd done either good or bad, God in Jesus Christ elected those who would be called and would be saved through his son. In other words, if you are a Christian right now, that is not because you made some really good choices or you were smart and intellectual and you weighed the evidence. It was because God elected you. But there's a perversion of this doctrine which I want to get want to address right now. And the perversion of this doctrine says that because God does everything in salvation, therefore we need to do nothing. 
That's rubbish. It's absolute rubbish. Jesus said the kingdom of, of heaven is suffering violence and the violence take it by force. God chose us first, but we need to strive and choose him too. With the same desperation and intensity as a besieging army will, will uh, seek to, to carry a city by force. The great uh, Puritan preacher Thomas Watson, he put it like this. He says, the right way to take heaven is by storm. None get into heaven but violent ones. The earth is inherited by the meek. Heaven is inherited by the violent. Our life is military. Christ is our captain. The gospel is the banner. The graces are our spiritual artillery. And heaven is only taken in a forcible way. Heaven must be taken by force. See, the doctrine of election said that God chose us. But if we then conclude that we are passive and we do nothing, that is an abuse of the doctrine. It's a terrible twisting of it. In other words, if there's no desire for salvation, there can be no salvation. No one is ever saved who does not want to be saved. No one is ever saved by surprise. Jesus never said, blessed are the complacent and the passive. There's an attitude um, of in the scriptures, there's an intensity and a necessity and essential laying hold of Jesus Christ with the same desperation that was in the heart of Jairus on that day long ago or in the heart of the bleeding woman. So you need to take action. And you need to take action if you're not yet a Christian. You cannot wait and say, am I elect? Or when, when is God going to do all, all this to save me? If, if you are not yet a Christian, then, then you are looking at a, at a fortified city. You're looking at the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, well, come and take it. Come and take it by force. And if you are already a Christian, then your exercise of faith day by day is laying hold of the promises that God has given you. The great reformed preachers of the gospel have always understood this. George Whitfield, uh, one of my perfect, one of my, not perfect, but one of my favorite uh, preachers, one of my great heroes, uh, his story is, is of pleading and longing with tears flowing down his face that his hearers would understand and would lay hold of Christ. Pleading with them, begging with them, showing them the beauty of Christ, hanging on the cross, calling out to them to come and lay before him their burdens and look up to him in faith. Saying that Christ has done everything for you never means that you do nothing for yourself. You too must be violent. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is suffering violence and the violent take it by force. What I love though is that after taking the kingdom of heaven by force, after doing violence on it and standing on the wall and surveying your conquest, you discover that Christ was there all the time. The king of heaven was not only waiting for you, he was calling you. He was awakening the desire in your heart calling you irresistibly to himself, choosing you, and now looking on you in love.
That's the first thing that applies to us. Let us never twist the doctrine of election to somehow arrive at the conclusion that we can be passive. That was never the Lord Jesus' teaching. And secondly, I love this, you can touch Jesus. You can touch Jesus by faith. Jesus is passing you by right now. In a spiritual sense, as he did physically with that woman in the crowd long ago, she can see him passing by. She longs to get close to him, so she reaches out and she touches the edge of his garment. But let me tell you that Jesus Christ wants more from you than touching the edge of his garment. Like Potiphar's wife long ago touched the, tried to grab Joseph's garment and failed. Like King Saul tried to reach out and grab Samuel's garment and, and ripped it off. More than that, Christ says, don't just grab the edge of my garment, grab all of me. Seize me. He wants you to depend on him. He wants you to clutch him and not let him go. Don't let me go. Don't let me go. Hold on to him. He wants you to feed on him fully. God is honoured and glorified when we as his people, as Christians, we seize Christ and we refuse to look at anything else. To fix our eyes determinedly on him. We seize him and we glorify in him. He is glorified by that. It's what we're called to do. And know that anyone can seize Christ. And I've, some people say, but, have said to me over the years, but Andrew, I don't know if I'm elect. What if I'm not elect? I, I can't seize Christ then. Wrong question. Wrong question. The key to the kingdom of heaven is faith. And anyone can have faith. The kingdom of heaven is open to everyone. There is no partiality. The kingdom of heaven is completely open. A bleeding, marginalized woman and a white privileged male like Jairus, a pagan soldier like Cornelius, a religious Pharisee like Nicodemus. If you hear the call and the desire is awakening in you, don't ask if am I elect, storm the kingdom. Take it by violence, nothing can stop you. Faith is the key that you have. The kingdom is waiting for you to storm it. The king of the kingdom of heaven asks you to. The kingdom of heaven is open to everybody. And thirdly, in the words of Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for, the conviction of things that are not yet seen. Faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for, the conviction of things that are not yet seen. And again, no one hopes for what he already has, but if he does not have it, then he hopes for it. And my point is this, that faith is made real in the in-between times. Faith is made real in the in-between times. Now, what, what do I mean? I mean that we are in the in-between times between the promises of Jesus and their fulfillment. We stand in the in-between Think of Jairus, the crippling news that his daughter is dead and the promise of Jesus, only believe and she'll live, but right now, hasn't happened. He is in the in-between times, walking with Jesus in a time that must have been incredibly hard and painful. 
And we walk in a similar way now between the promises that are given and the realizations of those promises. And yes, we are told in the Scriptures that we have the Holy Spirit as a down payment. We're not left as orphans. But the promises haven't been fulfilled yet, have they? They've been given, but you and I are in the in-between times. We are walking in often the dark night of faith. Like Jairus, we believe what we, have, what we have not yet seen because of our faith in the one who has promised it. But right now, we do not yet receive the fullness of the promises that have been given. Now, I don't know what it might be for you in this point of time. What is it where, for you, all of us, in some extent, walk in that in-between times, between the promises and their realisation But what are the promises that God has given you in Christ that right now you don't see the reality of them? You know that the promise was given and and you trust and believe in faith that in the end it will be realized, but right now you don't see it. Now, I don't know what that could be for you, but I do know that for each of us who tread this path, this side of heaven, we are in the in-between times. Faith is required. Only believe. Jesus says to Jairus, and he says the same to us, only believe. There are some some sweet words that Jesus will later on say. You'll remember them. It's after his resurrection, and Thomas, the disciple, has said, ah, yeah, I'll believe it when I touch it. Until then, uh uh-uh. And then Jesus stands before him in the upper room. He says, Thomas, here you go. Come on. And Thomas falls at the feet of Jesus and he cries out, my Lord and my God. Then you remember what Jesus says? He says, Thomas, you have seen and you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. In the in-between times, we are called to believe what we have not yet seen and to hope in it. It's part of taking the kingdom of heaven by force is that believing and holding on to what we don't now see the full reality of. But fourthly, why why does Jesus allow these in-between times? Why didn't Jesus just say to Jairus, oh, she's already alive, Jairus, I've raised her from the dead. Could he have done it? Of course he could have. He could have done the same with Lazarus, couldn't he? Which will happen later. Instead of delaying to the point that Lazarus would die and that that Mary and Martha would grieve, and this moment Jairus goes through that agony of, of being told that your beloved only daughter is dead, why didn't Jesus just stop that pain? He could have. Why didn't he? And the question we have is, why doesn't Jesus stop our pain now if he could? Why let us linger in the in-between? Why would he let this happen? He's not a sadist, so why doesn't he just take it away? Why doesn't he just bring the realization of the promise right now? And you know, the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. And anyone who tells you that they know all the reasons why he would do that, they are not God. None of us know. There's mystery But I do know from Holy Scripture that that this in-between time, the exercise of faith in the darkness and the pain and the suffering is rewarded. 
There's a beautiful verse in the Hebrews 11.6 that says this, And without faith it is impossible to please him. That's the negative folk. Negative focus is impossible to please him. But then the positive, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Do you hear that? He rewards those who diligently seek him. Now, why does God allow us to linger in the in-between times? I don't know, but I do know that there is a reward for those who will hold on to what they do not see by sight, but they, they own in faith. There is a reward. And this reward is not just in the presence now. Shalom, peace, Jesus said to that bleeding woman. He says it to us too. But there is a reward that it goes on into the heavenly realms forever. Why does Jesus allow it? We don't know, but we do know that one day it will all be made clear. C.S. Lewis, dealing with this question in his book, The Great Divorce, he says this, Son, he said, you cannot in your present state understand eternity. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasure, they say, let me have but this and I'll take the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of the sin. Both processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already confirms, conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. And that's why the blessed will say, we've never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. You see what Lewis is saying? There will come a moment when all, when, when heaven has been attained, when it will work backwards. Flowing back into all of our pain and confusion and sorrow. And we will say, the blessed will say, we've never lived anywhere except in heaven. What a beautiful promise. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And that he rewards those. Who diligently seek him. And finally, those who take the kingdom of God by force will find that death is not the end. Those who take the kingdom of God by violence will discover that death is not the end. The mourners at that little girl's funeral thought that, didn't they, as they they mocked and they laughed at Jesus. His words seemed ridiculous to them. Uh, many people still laugh at the claims that Jesus makes, don't they? Many still mock and scorn. When Jesus says that in him death is defeated, people laugh and they look sympathetically. But as he says, 
to those skeptics long ago. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. Where Jesus is concerned, death is just a little closing of the eyes to rest. It's not final. It's not complete because in just a moment, he'll take your hand and he'll take my hand like he took the hand of that little girl long ago. And he'll say, wake up. It's, it's time to wake up. There's a new and a bright morning that's dawning and, and there's things to do. And there's, there's a, a world to explore and a God to worship. Get up. It's the bright, shining dawning of the kingdom of God where death and disease and all of the, the weaknesses and the frailties and the brokenness of this world is gone. Little girl, get up. Get up. The battle and the hardship will be left behind. The kingdom we storm by our violence on earth will have been won for all eternity in heaven. And the Jesus we reached out so desperately for in our weakness as we touch the hem of his garment by faith will now be sight. And we'll stand with this woman, this bleeding woman, and this desperate dad and billions of others and we'll glorify God for what he has done. You see, when we're called to have faith, this is not have faith in something that is intangible, something that is, is wishful thinking, having faith not even in a philosophy or religion or, or, or something that we blindly hope. This is faith in a real person. This is faith in the king of the kingdom of heaven. This is a rational, real, deep faith. That's why these accounts were written for you and I, that we might put our faith in the rock that will last when everything else crumbles. Jesus is the one we do violence on as we lay hold of him by faith. His is the kingdom of heaven that we take by force. And he will not fail. For those who lay hold of him in violence, death is not the end. So Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back like a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it's well with my soul. I'm going to invite the musicians up and we're going to pray together as we close. And as we pray, I begin with the words of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Lord, this morning we stand in the in-between times and it's hard. You've given us promises, but we don't always see the full reality of those promises in our lives. You've, you've promised great things and yet we live in the in-between times. 
Yes, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we are filled with an inexpressible joy as we look forward to the fulfillment of those promises. But Lord, we pray that you would help us as we stand in the in-between times. Help us like Jairus to believe and to walk alongside Jesus in the time after the promises was given but it had not been fulfilled. Lord, we pray that you would help us to seize by faith that which we have not by sight. Lord, that you would help us to do violence on your kingdom daily. To reach out to you and to grab you and to let nothing distract us from that. And Lord, we thank you that as the king of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus Christ, that you came to earth so that we might storm heaven and that you call us and that you love us and that you draw us. And so, Lord, we put our faith and our trust in you. Whatever this week holds, whatever the, the world around us clings to and how, how distraught and upset and divided the world can be, we put our faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.